Welcome back to our teaching in the Gospel of John. Now, the last time we were here, we completed the entire chapter of John 11, dealing with the resurrection of Lazarus. And the primary idea was up until the resurrection of Jesus himself, this would be one of the greatest miracles, or as we would say always, and is properly interpreted, or should I even say translated, signs, which is the Greek word semion. Sometimes they're translated miracles, sometimes they're translated sign, but the idea is one of the greatest signs of Jesus, because remember, all that Jesus is doing is by these miracles, signs that he is doing, he is proclaiming or attesting to something about what he is saying, namely something about what he is saying about himself, son of man, son of God, both to his humanity and his deity. But we're not going to rehash all of this now. But we were in 11, we were dealing with the issue of what? The resurrection of Lazarus, which was one of the greatest miracles up until Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. And what made this so important were the beliefs of the Jewish people and the situation that was involved. Number one, the belief that the soul of an individual remains with that individual, remains with the body up until three days. After three days, the soul of that individual departs and enters into paradise, awaiting the final resurrection of the dead. That's number one. And remember that it was Lazarus had been dead for four days. So according to Jewish belief, his spirit had departed from his body and would therefore have to be resurrected by God himself on the last day. The second thing, Lazarus had been dead for four days in that his body had entered into a state of decay. Remember what his sister said, by now he stinks. So therefore there would have to be a complete rejuvenation and a complete resurrection of the body. This could only be done by God himself. So what happened when we take these two ideas concerning the resurrection of Lazarus, that is that decayness of his body and the fourth day, his spirit had already departed from his body and entered into Sheol paradise or whatever. But when we bring those two concepts together, this miracle that Jesus did was an astounding miracle attesting what that only God can do this. And this is the reason why John recorded this in his gospel. Because remember, the very predicate of John's gospel is proving that Jesus is not just the Messiah, a mere man, but he is God because he does the things that only God can do. So this is what we saw in chapter 11, the miracle, the sign of the resurrection of Lazarus, something that is done by Jesus to the which only God can do. And this brought a lot. I mean, a lot of people, this took the attention of a lot of people in Jerusalem. It took the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And a number of people were beginning to believe in the claims of Jesus. All right. So now that's enough with that. Let's prepare to move on to chapter 12. 
Now, in chapter 12, it's somewhat lengthy again, like chapter 11, but this time we are not going to discuss all of chapter 12 because once I get to the second part of chapter 12, I'm going to only deal with the first part up until something like verse 26, 29, something like that. But I want to put more time into discussing certain principles and theology that we will find in the latter part of chapter 12. But going into chapter 12, we are now moving into the feast of the Passover, which will be the final Passover that Jesus will celebrate. Remember that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus walking by the Jordan? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus will become, remember, everything that Jesus has been doing, he has been moving to this precise moment in his life when he will offer up his life for the sins of the world. Even as he spoke to Nicodemus early in this gospel, in Nicodemus's misunderstanding who Jesus was and why Jesus was sent when Jesus said, a famous verse, John 3 and 16, verse 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That famous verse, now is that time when Jesus moves, comes into Jerusalem at this time, preparing to, to fulfill these sayings of Jesus and the purpose to the which God has sent him to die for the sins of the world. So we enter into the final moments of the final Passover, the feast of the Passover that Jesus will celebrate. Okay, enough with all of that. Now let's just simply go into chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now let's stop there. So now again, as we were saying, we are moving into the final Passover time for Jesus. There will be his final Passover celebration. And he is now in Bethany and there is, there is a feast being given in the honor of Jesus. Now in another gospel, it lets us know that Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper. Now he is called Simon the leper because he is a man who wants had leprosy and of course Jesus has healed him from his leprosy otherwise it would be forbidden for him to be in the uh in communal relationships with other Jews and eating at the table and of course Jesus would not eat at the table with a man who had leprosy but nevertheless this is where he's at the house of Simon the leper and there in this festive celebration that they are holding in honor of Jesus we have Lazarus and remember just tie on, we just left chapter 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus. So the whole situation concerning Lazarus is still hot right now. And everybody's really excited about the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember what I just told you. It was, up, it was uh, considering the resurrection of Jesus himself outside of that. The greatest miracle that Jesus had performed. But nevertheless, in this festive time, there's the, uh, they're at the table with Jesus 
Of course, his disciples are present. Lazarus, as well as his sisters, are present at this particular event as well. And so there at the table, we find that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, had had a some very costly oil that called spike nard, and here it is called nard, very costly oil, that she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus with. And so you see here that there is the uh, evidence of Mary's love for the Lord. Notice how she anoints his feet with this very costly oil, and she also dries his feet with the very hair of her head. This is not sexual in any way. Otherwise, Jesus would have forbidden it. And you see some people trying to do that, especially of late. But what she is doing is she is showing her affection and her true love for Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Just go all the way back to where we had chapter 11. What do we have? Her brother was dead and Jesus resurrected him from the dead. So we see her showing her love and appreciation for Jesus in this very act. Now, let me talk about this spike nard. Uh, and, and, and we'll talk about the price if we move through the text. But this was something that was usually done by virgin women. They would save, they would save for a long period of time and buy costly oils so that they can anoint their own bodies for their wedding night. So that on their wedding nights with their husbands, so it's clear here what, Mary is unlikely married. So at the wedding night, they would anoint their bodies for a one-time special occasion. Once again, this is an indication of what? Mary's love for Jesus. For something that she has been saving for, who knows how long she's been saving for that? Because as we move through the text, we're going to find out the very value of this oil. But for some period of time, she's been saving this and she decides to use this. No doubt being moved by the spirit of God, she uses this to anoint the feet of her Lord. So again, this is an indication of a love and appreciation for Jesus. Now, let's continue. Four, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, let's talk about this. So, when the disciples of Jesus saw this, now John only records uh, Judas speaking at this time. So he records Judas as the spokesperson and the lead person. And no doubt it was Judas who had the greatest problem with this particular event. And John tells us why Judas had a big problem with it. But what we find in other gospels is... John was not the only somebody who had a problem with this use of the oil, this expensive oil, but the other disciples of Jesus also had a problem with the use of this oil, but it was simply uh, Judas who was the most outspoken one at this time. And it's in John, John, the writer of John's gospel, John tells us why. So what happens? 
when the disciples saw this, John, I'm sorry, Judas began to speak and exclaim with a sense of indignation that it was a waste of money. And notice he said that it all could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, a single denarii is what is paid to an average day's worker, one denarii. So if you have 300 denarii, you almost have a year's worth of money that would be paid to an average day worker. So this oil was very expensive, which goes again to speak to what? Most likely how long Mary had to save for this oil and the preciousness of this ointment and the preciousness that she felt concerning Jesus to use such an expensive oil to anoint his feet, and of course, to do what? To wipe with the hairs of a head. But back to the words of Judas. Judas talked about how this oil could have been served, could have been sold for a great amount, and the proceeds could therefore could be used for the poor. Now, John says, he says, Judas was not so much concerned about the poor, but Judas was the treasurer for Jesus and the disciples. Notice what he says. He was the one who had the money box. So it would be Judas who served as the treasurer, monitoring and handling the money that would come in and the monies that would go out. And so, and he said, Judas was not so much upset because of the waste of money, like he proclaimed, but that he pilfered out of that money. And the idea of pilfering means to me, take a little bit from the top. So as the money would come in, Judas would take a little bit off. Now that word that is used for pilfering is the Greek word ebastasane. Now, I don't want to get into all of the Greek in this lesson, but what I want to let you see is this word is used in the imperfect tense. What is important about the imperfect tense here is is simply signifying that this was the custom of Judas. That is, as money was coming in, it was the custom of Judas to be taking money out. This was not a one-time thing that he did, but this was a constant thing that Judas would do with the money. This itself becomes an indication of Judas's greed as well as it does what? It check marks. It evidences his uh, uh, the greed and how what prompted and promoted Judas, not only the devil, but the devil that entered Judas, used his greed to go to the chief priest and try to betray Jesus. Well, he set in motion his betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So we see what once again is highlighted the greed and avarice of Judas's nature. And that's what's important to see here. But anyway, so Jesus, uh, now let's continue on because I hadn't quite got there yet. Let's look at Jesus's response, not only to Judas, but all of the disciples about their upbraiding of this woman for the so-called waste that she is uh, expending upon Jesus at this time. Verse seven, therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. 
So now the response of Jesus, not only to Judas, but to all of them was simply to leave the woman alone because she was doing a service for him in preparing his body for burial. We remember that always, and when the Jews got prepared, got ready to, got ready to prepare a body for burial, there would always be ointments, spices, and anointing of the body. So Jesus is simply saying that she is preparing his body for such an event, which should be a great indication. If Jesus was going to continue with them for some long period of time, why anoint the body? The anointing would simply go off of itself. Sooner or later, just go away. And of course, as Jesus would bath, it wash it off. So the issue should that should really be in their mind is, if, they are, if she is anointing Jesus' body for burial, that means Jesus is soon to die. However, what we see is a blindness in the eyes of the disciples. Even though Jesus had just said something to them that should literally shock them to the core, they just don't get it that their Lord and their master is about to die. It kind of like goes in one ear and comes out the other. But Jesus is letting them know soon he is about to die. And once again, what? What time is it? We are at the feast of the Passover. This is now the appointed time that God has chosen for the one he has sent into the world to give his life. And remember, let's just go back. If you've been following John, I hope you have, that Jesus has constantly been avoiding doing things that would move or that would uh, 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 aggravate that coming hour. That, that when the people would seek to kill Jesus, he would go and he would deal with it. My hour has not come. But now the hour of Jesus has expressly come for him to die and Mary is now moved by the spirit of God, preparing Jesus's body for that ultimate sacrifice and burial. And then Jesus just simply makes a statement concerning the poor, because remember, that was Judas's objection. Uh, the money could have been given to the poor. Jesus simply said that the poor you will always have. Now, Jesus is not saying for them to go out and do something for the poor. He's just simply making a statement concerning poor people. There will always be poor people and you can do good to them whenever you'd like. However, on the other hand, I myself will not always be with you. Remember, she's preparing my body for burial. I won't always be with you. So therefore, you should seek to do good to me while you have me, treasure me while I'm present with you, show and indicate your love for me while I'm here with you. But we don't see that with the disciples, but we do see that with Mary. The disciples are on the other side of the fence. They are showing coarseness and really a lack of love for their master and how they're upbraiding Mary for what they're doing. It almost seems like a sense of jealousy in some way or another. I don't know, but they really did not care for this event, especially Judas. All right, now let's continue. Let's bring out this section to a close so we can move. Nine, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came 
not, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Okay, again, what is the time? It is the Passover. And of course, as we end the chapter 11, what was the expectation of the people? They were expecting Jesus to come to the Passover. And what had really ignited the people and created such a fervor amongst the people? The greatest miracle that Jesus had performed at this time, the resurrection of Lazarus. Okay, so now the crowds are forming. The word, uh, word is being spread that Jesus has now come and is at the house of Simon the leper. And so crowds are forming and the people not only want to see Jesus, but they also want to see Lazarus, the one, the evidence of the greatest miracle of Jesus. And remember what we said about that miracle, what made it so profound. Lazarus being dead for four days and those things that were associated with that. So the people really wanted to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and what? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. It is for this reason they not only wanted to put Jesus to death. Remember, they wanted to put Jesus to death but they did not want to put Jesus to death at the Passover. Remember what they said? Not at the feast. Why? Lest there be a riot amongst the people. So they didn't want to cause a riot during the festive days. And the Passover was one of the great festive days. A lot of people would be there. And Rome, remember what it said in chapter 11, Rome would squash this uprising of the people. Uh, uh, so, so to make a long story short, they decided to kill Jesus after the Passover, albeit this was not the plan of God. Their plans would actually be rushed as we will see. But anyway, the bottom line is they wanted not only to kill Jesus, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus. Why? The miracle, the sign of whom Jesus said, I am the son of man. I am God with you, the son of God. The sign that Jesus performed in the resurrection of Lazarus was beginning to be, to convince many people that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. He was who he was claiming to be. So in order to squash all of this mess, the Pharisees and Sadducees not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they needed to get rid of Lazarus as well to stop this movement concerning we believe that Jesus is the Messiah from the people. Okay, now let's continue on to we get to the point that some refer to as the great entry of Jesus into Jerusalem during the Passover season. In some of your Bibles, you may see it referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 12. So on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's coat. These things, let me keep reading. I guess it all kind of works together. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, now we got a lot to talk about, but not so much in great depth of theology, but we just covered a lot of material. So let's get to it. So now we are on the next day. Remember, we are still in the season of the Passover. Go back and look at what I taught about this in Matthew chapter 12, and you will see other information. I'm sorry, not Matthew chapter 12, but the gospel of Matthew. All right. I, I don't know exactly what chapter I did it on, but it's in Matthew that I talked about how in fulfilling uh, the prophecy, so to speak, of Exodus chapter 12, when Moses talked about, when Moses set forth the first Passover, the first Passover, how it was to be, um, I also go back and look at, I also did a, a commentary on Exodus chapter 12, but the idea is how in that the Passover is representative of the work of Jesus. From the time of when the Passover lamb should be taken, presented before the people, and then the Passover lamb is finally to be killed. All of this speaks of the work of Jesus. And so when we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem at this time, this is the presentation of the lamb. Aviv 10 or Nisan 10. And I don't want to get into all of that because again, we'll get too far, too far outside of John and I've also talked about these events in um, Exodus chapter 12. I spoke about that. That video is there. And also in Matthew, I did the full gospel of Matthew. So go look at that particular time. But the point that I'm making here is it is important to understand how Jesus symbolizes and fulfills, fulfills the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12 and the feast of the Passover itself. Jesus is that spotless lamb that God himself has taken and is now presenting to the people so that they will find no fault in him. That once the lamb is inspected and tested, this lamb would be approved for sacrifice. And that's all I can say about that at this time. Now let's return back to John. So what? Next day, the word of Jesus. Jesus is so uh, uh, magnificent and, and, and it can't be hidden about him. 
Large crowds are gathering. And remember, the people are already expecting Jesus to come. And the word is spreading. Some people have found out he was at the house of Simon the leper. And the word is just spreading and spreading and spreading. And we have this electrified crowd that is out there to meet Jesus as they hear of Jesus coming into Jerusalem during the Passover season. And so when they hear Jesus coming, there's a crowd of procession. There's a crowd that is coming along with Jesus. Remember, Jesus at the house of Simon the leper. With Jesus, there are people from Galilee who have heard of Jesus. Remember, Jesus from Galilee. A lot of people there and a number of people from Galilee believe in him. There are people in Jerusalem. So you got a crowd with him and a crowd that is coming to meet him uh, that is coming together with an electrified response when they see Jesus and they begin to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now that's what we need to talk about. So what happened? They come and they see Jesus and they meet him with this greeting. The first thing that you need to understand about this greeting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save save please and the idea is save please lord and that's the idea save please lord bringing in once again now the idea uh, from the people's perspective okay jesus in all that he does in his miraculous powers jesus can withstand and break the rule of the romans over the necks of the people of israel so the people's desire is for political deliverance. Jesus is not coming. We know, we know for political deliverance. Jesus is coming here in his first coming for uh, spiritual deliverance, deliverance from sin to break the yoke of sin, not to break the yoke of the Romans. But that's not the people's mindset. They are looking for deliverance like deliverance from the Romans. And this is the third time that the people actually said this. They did it for the two sons of uh, 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 Maccabee. They said these same things and it ended up in some type of civil revolt against the Greeks. And now they're saying this to Jesus with the idea there would be a civil revolt against the Romans. But this is not what Jesus is seeking to do, even though even though this will be the official reasons of the Romans to put him to death. But that's not what he's doing. He is coming to fulfill the scriptures. He is coming to answer for sin in the death of him on the, in his death on the cross. But okay, let's go on. So they're saying this to Jesus and they're casting down the palm branches in front of him. What you have to see is, this type of behavior for the Jewish people is normally done for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Remember, this is the Feast of the Passover, Passover unleavened bread, celebrated basically as one. This is the Feast of the Passover where we kill the Passover lamb, looking back to their deliverance from Egypt, but we understand prophetically being fulfilled in Jesus' death in deliverance from sin. But this is the Passover, but their actions, the palm leaves, is in the tabernacles. What does this mean? The tabernacles was the feast that was celebrated 
when you look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah and the great deliverance that he would bring for the Jewish people and the peace that he would give to the world, which would be the final feast, the feast of the tabernacles that will yield peace for the world and peace for the Jewish people. So this is how they're meeting Jesus. And so they're saying by the way that they're acting, come now, Lord, bring peace, bring deliverance. And that's why we understand this being from the mindset of the people, a political deliverance and not the spiritual deliverance that Jesus actually brought. But anyway, so this is how they say it unto him. And so notice, blessed is he, even what the king of the Israel. Once again, Jesus is not, not offering the kingdom to them. And Jesus is not giving a second chance that he is presenting himself as the king of Israel. This is only the expectation and desire of the people. But what Jesus is doing is he is fulfilling scripture. Because remember, all things Jesus said, Jesus said he must fulfill all things concerning him. And he'll say that we'll see that reading once Jesus resurrects from the dead and walking with them on the Emmaus road. When Jesus opens their understanding, don't you know that all things had to be fulfilled concerning me? And he opens their mind uh, from the law, from the Psalms and from the prophets, from all of the scripture, everything spoken about him had to be fulfilled, including this thing right now. But anyway, so we understand that, and, 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 and John gives us to hear in, in very condensed form about the finding of the coat and the young coat. There was a miracle that was involved because we have a young male coat that is called the fold, the fold here, right here, the fold, uh, the young male coat that has never been written upon, Jesus actually rides upon it. The reason why it's a small miracle is because normally the coat would buck and try to throw Jesus off. But of course he did not. But anyway, so Jesus comes into Jerusalem with this great parade of people front and the back coming to bring Jesus into Jerusalem with all of this uh, uh, fanfare of praise and Jesus riding on this coat this happens to fulfill Zechariah 9 and 9 when it says to Zion, don't be afraid. Behold, your king comes humble. That is, he comes riding on a donkey, not a war horse. He comes riding lowly, not with a royal crown upon his head. Later on, he's going to wear a crown of suffering, a crown of thorns. He comes into Jerusalem, not as a great conqueror, but as one who will ultimately give his life for his people. But anyway, so this is the humility that Jesus comes into Jerusalem with. The humility as he prepares to offer his life, not the grandeur that the people would have him with the golden crown riding on a horse with a mind to conquer the Romans. He comes in the very reverse opposite of these things. But anyway, so as he comes into uh, Jerusalem, 
his disciples themselves were not spiritually. And note, we keep seeing the spiritual blindness of his disciples, the spiritual blindness when Mary anointed his feet and Jesus had to chastise them. The spiritual blindness of how Jesus came riding in humility on this coat into Jerusalem. The disciples did not understand that Jesus was not coming to be glorified in the manner in which they perceived him because they themselves would desire one to sit on his right hand and another on his left hand in his glory. That is in the kingdom that Jesus is about to bring, that they think that he is about to bring. They did not understand it. His own disciples did not understand this moment of Jesus's humility. But it would take Jesus' death, resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is he who truly gave the disciples the understanding to reflect back on this moment. And that's why John said, and that's when we remember that we had done these things to Jesus. And that's when the disciples, his own apostles, understanding of this really came into fruition. They really understood what it meant because at the time they thought that this was some glorified event into the which Jesus was about to reign as king. They did not understand it. But anyway, so let's go on. So what? So the people, verse number 17, they were looking for Lazarus. The people, they were looking for Lazarus. They found Lazarus and the people were constantly moving about telling everybody, this is the Lazarus. This is Jesus who resurrected Lazarus and all of the events. Remember the whole issue about Lazarus, the greatest miracle. He was four days dead. And they were constantly telling people about these things and about this great sign that Jesus had performed. And so, of course, people are starting to listen and starting to believe. And I say that in quote, believe. And I speak that superficially, but nevertheless, believing in Jesus. And then you see the exasperation of the religious leaders as they see this great fanfare of people. They hear what they're saying about Jesus. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They know exactly Psalm 18. What that statement refers to. That Jesus is that coming one. And the people are lauding. Lauding means to praise. Are lauding Jesus in this respect. And they are absolutely disturbed because the world seems to be catching on fire as Jesus comes in this electrified moment in time. And so what do they say? They say to one another, see, we are accomplishing nothing. We got to do something about Jesus. And we sure got to do something about Lazarus too. Why? The whole world has lost its mind. Everybody is starting to follow after him. And if we leave him alone, they're going to all believe in him. So we see now that the Pharisees have lost their minds about Jesus as Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final time. And you know what, guys? <clears throat> because there is a connection with verses 20 
through 30. I think I'm going to start right here with this particular lesson. So let me stop because when we get into next lesson, the next lesson, we're going to try to do all of that and finish chapter 12 in the next video that all of this is connected with that coming entry into Jerusalem. Okay. All of it's connected, but there is more so of a closer connection because in the remaining of this chapter, there are going to be Gentiles. Greeks, now that's what's so important, but I'm not going to get into it here because I'm going to stop. Greeks who are going to ask to speak to Jesus. Not only this does it speak to the popularity, but this Jesus is going to say to himself, this speaks to the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming into the world when the Gentiles begin to seek for Jesus, which will move into the second aspect of the ministry of Jesus, not Jesus' personal ministry, but the ministry that will be continued by his apostles in the book of Acts. Once Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and descended from the dead, what? The gospel of Jesus will go to the Gentiles, but it cannot go into the Gentiles until Jesus is first crucified and resurrected. Okay. So that's the idea of what's going on in the remainder. And that's what we'll get into, uh, in our next video, the Lord say the same, but anyway, thanks for joining me with this particular video. What did we see again? The final hours of Jesus, the final moment, actually the final days, but the final days of Jesus in his last Passover, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, Fulfilling the scriptures, what do we see? The great praise of Jesus in another gospel. And we didn't even bring it up because we're simply studying the gospel. As Jesus came in and the people were proclaiming and saying to him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, do you not hear what these people are saying about you? And Jesus would simply turn to them and say, if these should hold their peace, I tell you this day, the rocks would cry out. So how important and electrified that the rocks would begin to proclaim that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. That day was on fire. And that's what we see in John chapter 12. But anyway, thanks for joining me with all of that. Let me say, if the Lord has blessed you, and you can say, Pastor Lee, I truly appreciate all of the teachings that God has allowed you to bring. Will you please support this ministry? There is always a link in the description that will show you how you can support this ministry. And to those of you who have already done so, let me give you a personal Thank you, and God bless you for all that you have done. All right, enough of all of that. Anyway, guys, I can't wait to see you on the next go-round and get into chapter 12. Now, chapter 12, the end of this, is going to be somewhat lengthy, so get your coffee ready. All right, God bless you. See you next time.